And good morning, everyone. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors around here. Welcome to you that are here uh, an hour early today. And for those of us that are online that are like still not online yet. Um, hey, this is going to be one of those days where uh, half of us are going to show up right when we start singing the second set of worship songs. Thinking for the first time I'm here on time, right at 10 o'clock, not 10 past. And then we're going to say good day, have a good weekend, and see you next week. And they're going to be like, What? So it's good to see you all here. So it's good to see you here. Almost on time. Well done. Um, <laughs> hey, <laughs> this is going to be one of those messages today. Oh, it's going to be one of those messages today. It's going to be one of those ones where you go, I am so glad, hate, that I came this morning. Because um, it's one of those messages that we all have to hear. It's one of those we all have to hear this. Now, I've never asked you to do this before. But um, this is going to be one of those messages where you're going to sit there thinking, I know someone who needs to hear this. Oh, so-and-so should have been here. I wish so-and-so was here. So we need to get our head around this. So for the first time ever, I want to ask you to repeat after me, okay, as we get ready for this, just to prepare yourself. So repeat after me. Say this out loud. This message is for me. Not for the person that I think should hear this. All right? Because this is going to be one of those messages today. I'm telling you right now. We're going to get in this passage. The passage we're going into, you're going to be sitting here as we read this passage. You go, man, I so wish my husband was here today. I so, oh, Aunt Lulu really needs to hear this. I wonder how I can get my kids to watch this later on. It's one of those messages where you're immediately going to think of someone else who needs to hear this. I promise you we all need to hear this passage today. This is the one that's for all of us here. We're going to talk about the power of speech today. Ever had one of those moments where you wish you could just go back in time and take it all back? Where you wish you could go back in time and totally change that conversation? Change the words that you chose to use in that moment? Ever burn bridges in the midst of a heated conflict and, and now it's like to this day it's still not resolved? Because you went there when you shouldn't have gone there and said some things that you really wish you shouldn't have said. Ever had an interaction with someone and you're like, mate, oh, if I could get a do-over on that, I blew that one so badly by a misspoken word, by some poorly chosen words, some unwise words. But there's a flip side of that too. You ever had those conversations with someone where those words stick? Someone used some really encouraging, wise words at the right time and you still, still hang on to them today. They still kind of play on repeat in your mind all the time. Just keeps you keeping on. Maybe it's a parent or a coach or a, a teacher or a friend or a mentor who kind of pulled you aside and gave you words right at the right moment. Really wise words that you encouraged you and you think back now like, wow, that's when the change began. That's when I took a different path from that conversation onward. There's power power in words. We're in the book of Ephesians. We've taken what should be a four-week series, and we're on week 15 right now in Ephesians. Apostle Paul is writing to this little church in the city of Ephesus. It's a little church found in the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's a dark city. Everybody comes, and they're devoted to the Greek goddess Diana. Uh, it's filled with the black arts, with magics and incantations and sorcery. And this little church that Paul starts there, he sat there with them for two years, started this little church. He said, let me tell you how to be church today in today's society. Let me tell you how um, anyone, anyone can call themselves a Christian. 
anyone could call themselves a Christian, but if you want to take it seriously, if you want to really be a Jesus follower, here's what I'm asking you to do. We're at the very end of chapter 4 today, but I want to start real quick back at verse 17 again. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, if you want to get out your flash screens, pull out your Bibles, it says this, So I tell you this, I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as Gentiles and non-believers doing the futility of their thinking. Now remember again what we talked about before, if a passage starts with the so, you got to start with the question, so what? So, so what? So that now you know how incredible God is. This is all the stuff that Paul's talked about in the previous chapters. So that you know all that he went through to get a relationship with you, to buy you back. The moment that he took on the debt that you owe. When God walked up and said, look, I'm going to have my son Jesus pay for this. Uh, so now you don't owe me anything. You don't owe God anything. That's why Jesus hung on the cross. He paid the price in full. He said himself, it is finished. It is done. All you have to do is receive it. The Bible says it's a free gift. And he said, the moment you walked up with your life and said, God, I give myself to you. God said, look, I'm going to allow Jesus to pay for you. Whatever debt you owe, I'm going to allow my son to pay for you. I bought you back. I have redeemed you. And then he goes on. So now, Paul says, I want to tell you, no, 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 I insist. I insist on this, church. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, don't keep living like you used to. You're a different person now. Don't live like people who don't know Jesus live. So by grace, Paul writes, God has empowered you has given you power and gifts that you did not earn, gifts that empower you to live differently, to live like Jesus in today's world. But you have to choose to use them. You have to choose to actually follow Jesus as a follower of Jesus. You have to choose to follow where he goes, to follow him to whomever he leads you to, to follow the way he obeys God His and now our Father. To follow the way he serves others. To follow the way Jesus lives. And we come down to the last couple verses of chapter 4 today. With another way to follow him. And I think, I think this is where the whole chapter is leading. I think the whole chapter is leading to these final few verses. Starting at verse 29. Verse 29, and it starts like this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So he's saying, look, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, a Christian, a Jesus follower, let's talk about your language. Let's talk about your speech. Now, if you want to follow along your note sheet, you got some opportunities to fill in some blanks there. And we're going to start off with this idea that Paul gives that we have a new language we have to learn as Jesus followers. See, to be in a new kingdom, we have to learn a new language. It's, it's the first necessary step whenever you move into a new culture, right? You have to learn a new language when you move into a new culture. And we learn by cultural immersion, by just being there. Um, I tell you, the faux pas... That I have done moving to New Zealand from the States, from America. When I, um, 
when I first arrived to New Zealand, I came back at the end of the 80s. And back in the end of the 80s when I arrived, it was still appropriate to wear what you call here a bum bag, right? Put your passport and stuff in there. Except in the States, we don't call them bum bags. I can't believe the shock looks on, my, on people's faces when I talked about putting things into my fanny pack. I feel like, oh, a Brian, you can't say that. It's a bum, you can't say that. When I was like a young 20-something and I volunteered at the church I was living next door to to help with their children's group uh, and their, their kids' church, I was helping with the 9 and 10-year-olds. Man, I was shocked. I had to go to the head teacher like, what do I do with this? I don't understand. I mean, I heard New Zealand's kind of liberal, but man, this little girl came up to me. A little 9-year-old girl came up to me and asked me for a rubber. I was like, oh, a what? A, a what? I went to the teacher, and I went, and he, she goes, it's an eraser. Oh, it's an eraser. Okay, I'm all right. See, I had to learn what I don't say, and I had to learn what I do say. Now, the more we live in a culture, the more we get surrounded by its language, and the more we start picking it up. Now, Paul's writing to this little church, and he says, the world outside these windows, they talk a different language. Now that you're a Christian, now that you're a Jesus follower, you're going to need to learn the new language, the language of the kingdom. And to be in a new kingdom, you need to learn this new language because your speech is going to give you away as a Jesus follower. Now, this is how it works. There's two questions I put in your note sheets. And the first question is, do I talk in a way that attracts people or repels people? This is where Paul's going with this. Your language, your language, the way you talk, does it attract people or does it repel people? Now, Paul's not just talking about obscene vulgarity. He's not just talking about curse words. He's also talking about slanderous speech and disrespectful speech. He says, what you bring to your home, what you bring to your workplace, it's the speech that causes people to say, man, when they're here, when they're in the room, I just feel better when they're here. I feel better when they leave because of the way they encourage me. Or is it a language that repels people and people are more glad you left than they are that you showed up? Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, Paul writes. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Circle that part. Underline that part. Highlight it in your little Bible app. Their needs that it might benefit those that listen. So how does our speech benefit others? Well, the word used here in Greek is charis. Charis means grace. It means getting what you couldn't possibly deserve from God. What it's saying is your speech should constantly blast people. Just blast people with good, good that they don't even deserve. Biblically speaking, that's what we're called to do. We're called to just blast people with kindness, with forgiveness, with compassion. Understanding that they can't possibly deserve this is called grace. Grace. And here Paul writes, just as God has given to you what you can never deserve, never earn, never live up to, your speech now does in return. Because you're a little him. You're a little Jesus running around here. You're like your dad. Your speech now gives people what they couldn't possibly deserve. 
Think back right before Jesus was crucified. When Jesus was first taken and arrested and taken to trial in the early hours of the morning. It's still dark outside. All the disciples ran. They all booked it for cover. Peter sticks around. He kind of blends in with the crowd. He kind of warms himself by the fire. Jesus is being mocked and beaten and tortured and spit upon. And then a little servant girl recognizes Peter and, and kind of whispers to some, some of the guys in the crowd. And the crowd starts saying, hey, aren't you one of the 12? You're, you're one of the 12, right? And basically they're saying, your speech has given you away. You sound like you're from Galilee. You sound like one of his disciples. So what does Peter do? He immediately starts cursing. Cursing that he doesn't know the guy. And the crowd backs off. Okay, okay, okay. But I, I, you're not, you're not, you're not. It's a great picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Our language should give us away because we are different from the rest of the world. See, the quickest way that Peter knew how to get the crowd off his back was to start shouting out profanities. Oh, you're not one of them. You're one of us. And the crowd backed off and said, okay, you're not a disciple. You're a fisherman. You swear like a sailor. I get it. Go, Go ahead. See, your speech gives you away. Now, I realize we all work in different environments. And for some of us, just to be heard in our environments, you need to use a little bit of colorful language just to fit in, right? In the context in which you do business or or how you fit in with the people um, that you socialize with. I get it. Our jobs are stressful. Your supervisors, your project managers, your parents, you're tired. You lose it sometimes. And every once in a while, you drop a few four-letter bombs, right? Just to get their attention. I I get that. I understand that. But I also have the same four books of the Bible in my Bible as all of you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That tells about the life and the teachings of Jesus. Talks about a man who is always in charge. About a man who is always calling the shots. About a man who was in real life at death situations. Under real stressful situations. A man who stood in front of crowds that wanted to beat him. And a man who always kept control of his tongue. I get it. I mean, I get it. My job as a pastor is different from yours. I know. I don't walk into the church office and drop a few F-bombs just to get the other pastors working harder, right? That's just, if I did that, I would lose my job. But, you know, but elders, I was just trying to, the pastors need a kick in the butt today. No, it's not how it works. It's not how it works. That's not how my job site works. It's the opposite of many people's job sites. But there's a God who came to earth. And said, look, I'm going to show you what leadership and control looks like. And then he had the gall, the gall to say on this side of the cross, so now you need to be like me, Jesus says. You do this like me. And we all know what's best, right? We've seen the TED Talks. We all know that the best control, the best professionalism, the best mature leadership is always keeping the tongue in control. And then you can control the situation. James chapter 3, James, Jesus' half-brother, he watched Jesus grow up this way. He watched how Jesus did this. He wrote about this very thing. He writes an entire chapter about the tongue, 
about the language we use. And if you struggle in this area, read these 12 verses. James chapter 3. He says your tongue is the same thing. He says, um, he writes about a small start, a spark that can start a huge forest on fire. How a small rudder in the back of a huge ship can direct and steer its direction. How a small bit in a huge horse's mouth can control that huge beast. And he says, your tongue is the same. Your tongue can set your life direction and you're going to be known by what comes out of your mouth. And then James was on a rise. He says, can fresh water and salt water come from the same stream? He goes, no. Can figs and olives come from the same tree? He goes, well, of course not. So he says, how can you call yourself a Christian, a Jesus follower, if that's your speech, if that's your language? He writes, my friends, it cannot be. You're either one or the other. Apparently, this is a big issue in the Bible. Paul's writing the same thing here in Ephesians chapter 4. So how do we do this? How do we do this whole tongue thing? Now, look, I'm not going to put up in the PowerPoint now a list of words you can and cannot say. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say, look, in general, if it's got four letters, just stay away from it. And that's safer that way. And instead, you can use these acceptable Christian cuss words, right? There's acceptable Christian cuss words. Things like shucks, dab nabbit, and crapola, and holy moly, and holy stinking moly, and holy cow, and criminy, and cripes, and good grief. And for Pete's sake, or for crying out loud, or jeepers, or sheesh, or bullpucky, or bullshivic. Uh, actually, that one's too close. Don't use that one. That's too close to the real one. Don't do that one. See... Paul's not saying, here's a list of biblically condoned words. And then here's some words that thou shalt never use. Besides, words change, right? With generations and cultures. You know that, that bug word? You know that bug or word, you know? We Americans use that word when we're just trying to imitate the English. But here, it's a really bad word. You know that word Trump? Trump used to be a neutral word. <laughs> Just saying. See, Paul is writing about your language. Your language. And, and, and he's talking about what we write next on your notes. Next in your notes. Do I say what I want? Or do I say what people need? Verse 29. Only say what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. Give grace to the people around you, he writes. Help them with their needs. And sometimes saying what people need to hear isn't actually what they want to hear. There are times and places where language is going to make people feel frustrated, feel a little attacked, a little judged maybe. Sometimes things that you've said to somebody um, that needs to be said to that somebody, they're going to really disagree with. They're not going to like hearing it. But love can demand hard conversations. And people can be upset at you for some of those hard conversations. What you need to be able to do is stand before God and just ask him, did I do this in the right way? I mean, Jesus himself, he called people what? Brood of vipers and serpents and whitewashed tombs. I'm pretty sure they didn't appreciate that either. But Jesus never did it out of anger. He never did it out of rage. 
He always did it in a way to help them see and understand their faults and their failures and where that was going to lead them. He always did it for the benefit and the good of other people's lives. We do it because we're family. There's times and places for that. And we all need to do it. You don't give Pastor Brian a call. Oh, hey, you need to go talk to so-and-so. No, you need to go talk to so-and-so. We do this as family to bring out the best, to tease out the best in each other's lives. We do it because we care. But how do we do that? Because if we're not given a list of good, bad, and you know, gray area words, and if we're not given a use of, of really loving pastoral phrases to use in talking about the difficult stuff, and we're supposed to learn this new language, is it just up to us to decide when to let loose and when not? Apparently not. Because then Paul writes how in this new kingdom with the new language, we're actually given a new instructor. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, from whom you were sealed for that day. For the day that you'll be taken home. That day that the Spirit has put on your life as a guarantee, a promise that this is not the life for you right now. Your life comes later. Your eternal life comes later. Paul's referring back to what he wrote, I don't know if you remember, back in chapter 1. Of Ephesians. Starting at verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. See, he's picking up in chapter 4 what he's already laid down in chapter 1. The moment you heard the good news of who God is, the moment you heard that God gives forgiveness, the moment you heard that this Bible is not a list of, of do's and don'ts and how you get to God, instead that this Bible is a collection of stories of how God gets to you, the moment you said, I believe, I accept that, the moment you brought up whatever you owe to God and you said, this is my debt, and you give it to him, and you actually say, I'm going to allow Jesus to pay for this. I'm going to thank Jesus for paying for this. I'm yours, God. He said, at that moment, you were given the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with him. And he said, your life is like that new wax you put on a letter. And God puts his picture on it, his stamp on it. And you are identified in Jesus Christ. And you have the spirit of God that guarantees your life. So when it comes to this thing about language, the language you use in your home and the language you use on the, on the work site, he simply says, this is not about a list of words that you should and shouldn't say. He goes, let me just put it this way. Don't say things that are going to grieve the Holy Spirit that's with you, that's in you. Now, this grieving the Holy Spirit thing, this can be kind of a foreign concept, right? We can grieve God. We can actually make God upset. In Genesis 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it says that God looked at all of humanity and the wickedness of what they were doing on the earth, and he was grieved that he made them. 
It's not that God changed his mind. Oh, I messed up. I shouldn't have done those people. It's not that God wishes he would have done things differently. I never should have created him with a mouth. That's, this, this grieving is more like what most parents do with their kids. When their kids are bickering, when their kids are not doing their homework, or when their kids are treating others badly, or when their kids are just doing wrong stuff, it grieves us as parents. It grieves us as parents because we look at our kids and we think, do you know how much more there is to life than this? Do you know how much fun we could be having together right now? But now you got to go to your room. Now you got to go to your bed with no dessert. Now you got to go sleep outside in the car. <laughs> is that not a thing here? No? <laughs> Just, okay, I never said that. Can we erase that on the thing? See, that's what verse 30 is all about, right? That's what it's all about. In your notes, I put it this way. Do I talk in a way that really believes that God is present? See, as followers of Jesus, do you really believe the Holy Spirit is in us? That God himself is in us. The very icon of God, that big G internet icon that when you click on it, it opens up everything the internet brings to you. You have the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have the very image of God in your life. The very icon of God, the very fullness of who God is is made available to all of us that when we daily talk with people, do we really understand, do we really believe that I have a standing audience with the Spirit of God in my life? With everything that I say to my spouse, with everything that I say to my kids, to everything I say to my employees or my employer, with the language that I use at school, with, with uh, my peers, with my mates, with my, my uh, co-workers, do I really believe that the Holy Spirit is present with me 24-7 every day of my life and I am marked in the image of God? Paul says, this is your litmus test. That's the governor of your tongue. That's how you do this. Because if the Spirit of God is love, how much of your language and speech is unloving? If the Holy Spirit is given to build up Jesus' followers, how much of my speech is tearing down others? And I'm working against the work of the Spirit in my life instead of working with the work of the Spirit in my life. If the Holy Spirit is pure, how much of my language and my joking is impure, is sexual, is tainted? If the Holy Spirit is truth, how much of my language is dishonest and deceitful? If the Holy Spirit's coming into the world to love people and draw them to God, how much of my language is actually repelling people from God? And Paul goes, do you really believe that you have the Holy Spirit in your life? Because if you do, realize that your speech, the words you choose to use and how you say them, should never grieve the Spirit of God. You know, in today's world, everybody's carrying one of these, right? They got a camera ready all the time. Nothing's hidden. Nothing's hidden anymore. Someone always is filming somebody else 24-7. 
whether you are a police officer or you're in customer service or you're an irate customer or you see a Karen at the McDonald's, two people in front of you in line, someone is watching, right? And someone pulls out a phone and they catch it and they post it and it's on Instagram and it's on Facebook and everybody hears what you said and everybody sees what you did. And if you go through every day with that in mind, you'll probably stay out of a lot of trouble knowing that everybody's watching. Put the title pastor in front of your name. Everybody watches what they say around the pastor. The amount of times I ask people, hey, how's your day going? How are you doing? And they say, oh, my day was just shaving cream. (laughs) And they catch themselves because I'm standing right before them. All right? And this is in the foyer after church. Do we really believe that 24-7 the Spirit of God is with us and involved in every conversation and how we treat every single other person we cross paths with and how we talk with and about every single person we cross paths with and what we do at home and how we talk to the people in our homes. And then Paul kind of makes a list. And he tells us what to do and what not to do, as Paul does. And he kind of says, look, instead of choosing to grieve God, chapter 4, verse 31, he says this, get rid of it. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. So this is what I want you to get rid of in your speech, is what Paul writes. But first notice that he starts with get rid of, get rid of. What that implies, what the Bible implies, what the Bible is actually saying is that we got it in us to get rid of in the first place. That it assumes that we have it. The Bible's like, look, let's not play any games here. I know you've got rage. I know you've got anger. Look, I know you're bitter. I know that guy's a jerk. I know you just want to let him have it. The Bible assumes that. Notice the Bible doesn't say, now Christians, never, ever, ever in your life should you ever, ever, ever have rage or anger or brawling or slander because it makes baby Jesus cry. doesn't say that. He says, look, the Bible's like, okay, I know you've got it. You've got it. It's there. Which also means the Bible knows that there are people out there that deserve your anger. There's people out there that need to be blown out of the water verbally sometimes. There are people who just need to be set straight. And thank God you have just the mouth to do it, right? Because there's jerks out there that deserve it. There's people out there that have hurt you. There are people that are ignorant and they live their own way in a way that interferes with your way. And there are people who have legitimately hurt you or your family, or your loved ones. And the Bible acknowledges there are people out there who deserve your anger and deserve your rage and have made you bitter, and you do wish ill towards them. And the Bible says you have it. We all do. And the moment you become a Christian, the moment you decided to start following Jesus, you lay all that down. You laid it down. You get rid of it. And you choose to act on their needs and not yours. I think a lot of us Christians have forgotten that. So Paul writes, let me tell you how to get rid of what we all know you have. So in your notes, 
I said replace. You want to replace these things. We're just going to kind of, kind of bullet point list real fast. First of all, do I still have bitterness in my life? What are you holding on to? Aristotle says bitterness is a resentful spirit that refuses reconciliation. Who today are you still bitter at for days, weeks, months, years past? Who today, when they are near, or when you just hear their name, you just your blood boils? Paul writes, God wants you to get rid of that bitterness. Now, as we go through this list, I want to make something really clear. God's not saying let them off the hook. That's not what God's saying. God is saying, look, there are people out there who have hurt you. And they have hurt your family, sometimes in very tragic ways. And and I know you want to beat them. You want to beat them down, and they deserve it. And God says, Brian, mate, let me handle it. Revenge is mine, says the Lord. So he says, Brian, give it to me. Because one, look at the shape you're in. You could beat down a paper bag right now if you wanted to. And secondly, you'd probably have to serve some time if you did. Or at least be taken to court. And that's just dumb. So God says, let me handle it. He says, son, here's what I want you to do. As your good dad, let me handle it. Son, daughter, your job is just to get rid of the bitterness. Secondly, Paul asks, do I have any rage in my life? Now, rage is that outburst, that outburst of wrath, that outburst of anger. It's that short fuse that just goes off. It's the thing that you often hear people try to explain away, defend a little bit. They just kind of say, look, it's just kind of the way I'm wired. You mean like a bomb? That's how bombs are wired. They're wired to just go off. And you just kind of spray shrapnel over everybody in your life around you. Yeah, but you don't get I just I blow up and it's over. It's over. Except for the wounded. It's not over for the wounded, for the people who have to live with you every day and deal with the wounds of that shrapnel. It's not over for the people that constantly carry that shrapnel 5, 10, 15 years later just because you went off because, you know, that's just the way I'm wired. And then third, the question is asked us, do I still have any anger in my life? If rage is that immediate explosion, anger is that kind of settled disposition opposed to forgiving. I'm I'm, going to hold on to this. I'm going to hold on to this grudge. I'm not going to let it go. They don't deserve me to let it go. They don't deserve for me to love them. They don't deserve for me to forgive them. They deserve my anger. But as scripture always says, all through the New Testament, that kind of anger kills you. And you're the one who ends up being more hurt than anybody else. The number four, Paul asked, do I still have brawling, brawling in my life? Now, brawling, it's like a pub fight. Not a pub fight. No, I don't brawl. Um, but Paul writes, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, and brawling. It's kind of all together somehow. So I had to do a little word study on brawling. The word brawling in Greek, it's an onomatopoeia kind of thing, right? You know, it's a word that sounds exactly what it is, like oink or moo or bark or roar. That's what brawling is. It's only used six times in the New Testament. And every time that word is used in the New Testament, except for this time in Ephesians 4, it's translated as a shriek. 
or a cry. Here it's translated as brawling. I don't know why. I looked at it, I couldn't find why, but it is. But it's the same word. It's actually the Greek word that means a raven's cry. It's a shriek. The word brawling in Greek, it's an onomatopoeia. It's the word grasso. That's the word. Grasso. It's an onomatopoeia. Grasso. And, and if you've ever been at home, you know, and no one's listening to you. And they're like, they're not doing what I told them to do. And they're doing this instead. And before all of a sudden, all of a sudden you go, grasso. It's just, everyone's like, whoa. And out of nowhere, there's this shriek, Right. And now I see you, you're hitting elbows, you're like, yeah, I know what they're talking about. That's, remember when, I won't say who did it, but remember when they did that? See, that's what Caroso is, right? It's so cool. It's those words. It's a cry, but it's a shriek. And it's done um, at someone or at something. How many times do you just kind of let that loose, right? And then Paul goes on. Do I still have any slander? Slander. Slander is speech who's meant to hurt others. Slander is speech that is meant to bring someone down. It's, and people are like, look, I, I only said it because I'm just trying to get their attention. They just got to know how serious I am. Great, you're going to get their attention and let them know how serious you are by shattering their spirit. By saying something that you mean to hurt them with. You know it's going to hurt them, and it does hurt them. It's meant to pierce them. And then he goes on, do I have any malice in my life? Malice, wishing ill will, a desire to injure. Now, look at your notes, the way they're lined out on your piece of paper. Under bitterness, just draw an arrow down, straight down to rage. And then under rage, an arrow straight down to anger. And then from anger, a little arrow straight down to brawling. And brawling to slander, and slander to malice. See the progression? Paul is progressing this idea. Paul writes, let me tell you how life works. There's going to be things that create friction in your life. There's going to be things that create bitterness. You're going to want to explode in a rage. You're going to want to say things and do things that a Jesus follower just doesn't do. That a Jesus follower should never do. And because of that, because when you're going to be filled with this anger and you're, you're, gonna, um, you're not going to let it go, this anger is going to have this kind of shriek that comes out of you from time to time. And, and if you've ever known someone where you have to walk on eggshells around them because you never know what's going to set them off, you never know what's going to kind of just make them set off like a bomb because they're so filled with rage and anger and all of a sudden out of nowhere these shrieks come out of nowhere um, and words come out that cause harm and ill will. Paul says, I know this progression. This happens with people who don't choose to get rid of it. There's basically a verse where Paul is saying that now that you're a Jesus follower, you've got to be in control of your emotions. You've got to be in control of your emotions. If you have the Spirit of God in your life, you have the very DNA of God in you. You have the very icon of God that opens up the fullness of God. You just got to click on it. And if you believe this good news, and if you've accepted it, and you've been sealed with His Holy Spirit, you're now the image, the image of our Dad. So you got to choose to walk and talk the same language He uses. Otherwise, you're killing the Spirit of God in your life. You're actually grieving God. Instead of just tapping in and just saying, God, 
I got a problem with my mouth. I got a problem with my anger. Help me with my tongue. Help me with my language. I'm going to be different from all the people that I work with and see all around me during the week. And to the dads that are here and the moms that are here, the day after you know you did the grasso, the day after you realize you did the shriek after the blast, you need to bring that family together in the living room, around the kitchen table, and say, look, I need you all to hear this. I blew it tonight. I know that doesn't surprise you because I've done it before, and I've said sorry, and I've done it before, and I've said sorry. It's been my track record, but I really am sorry. I'm going to work on this. You don't defend yourself. You don't say, but you guys got to stop it because every time you do it, no, you don't defend. You just own your own stuff. Own your own stuff. Leave it on you and just say, look, it's not the type of home I want to have here. It's not the type of home we're supposed to live in. It's not the type of language you need to hear from me. So I just want to let you know, I'm sorry. And I'm working on it. And maybe in that moment, that's the closest your speech has ever been to being like Jesus. It's not a speech about Jesus. It's talking like Jesus. See, the moment you came to God, you laid down your right to say what you want to say the way you want to say it. And now in all situations, he says, build each other up. The tongue has a power to blast. And the tongue has the power to build. Paul writes, you choose. And since you chose Jesus, you choose to build. And then he turns a corner. He turns a corner. His last verse. And then he says, last verse, he says, so be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That is what we're supposed to do instead. Paul writes, you do what Jesus has done for you and you do it for others. So the questions that he's asking is, where can I show more kindness in my life? Now, top of your notes says this is a take-home test. This is a take-home test, but it's an open book test, all right? You don't going to have to take more than five seconds to come up with the answers to these test questions. When I ask you, where do you need to be more kind to people? You know. You know who those people are. Where do I need to give them what God has given me? An an, an undeserved kindness. You know exactly who we're talking about right now. Where can I show more compassion in my life? Next question. Where can I give people grace? Where can I blast people with compassion and kindness so huge that they do not deserve it regardless of what they've given and done to me? This is the model we follow. Romans 5.8 says, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. I did nothing to gain God's love. I did nothing to deserve God's forgiveness. I did nothing to deserve his grace. I did nothing to deserve his mercy. I was still a piece of shaving cream. And Paul writes, I want you to do to them. <laughs> Sometimes you're going to roll. And Rachel's going to talk to you on the way home. You shouldn't have done that. I want you to do to them what you love that God has done for you. He has given you undeserved forgiveness and mercy and grace and compassion and kindness 
And God says, take that home. Take that to your school. Take that to your workplace. Take that to your church. And then finally, we asked, where can I show more forgiveness in my life? Where do I need to just let go and let God? It's not condoning an action. It's not condoning a behavior. You're saying, God, this is destroying me. You are God. I am not. My anger, my bitterness, my slander, my malice, my caroso, I'm giving it to you. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to let go and let you do a better job than I could ever dream of doing. And then next chapter, just to kind of wrap it up. Chapters are broken up funny in English sometimes, but just to kind of wrap it up. He writes in chapter 5, verse 1, Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. God simply says, I love you. I've adopted you. Now I want you to be like me. Imitate your father. Be like dad in those situations. Don't be the old you. Be the new you because of my son Jesus. The Bible says, look, I know you got it. I know it's in you. Get rid of it. And here's what you replace it with. You have the spirit of God in your life to change you from the inside out, to work in you and through you for the sake of others. Rely on that. Don't rely on you. And when you blow it or when you blow up, Come back and say sorry. You apologize. And you keep being like Jesus. In your speech, at your work, in your schools, in your home, in our church. Noticeably different from the world that does not know God. Because if not, and if we don't do that, you open up the book of James and he's going to ask you, how can this be? Seriously? You call yourself a follower of Jesus. You say you're one like, like Christ. When your language isn't different from the rest of the world? Paul says, look, this is just mind-boggling. That this is the stuff you're supposed to get rid of, Paul would say. In fact, I encourage you, no, no, I insist, he says. Don't talk any longer like you used to. And like the world accepts. Be different. Do it different. I told you, this was for all of us today. Not just the people that aren't here. Not for somebody else. This is for all of us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for just in a few verses that are so crystal clear. Yet in an area that we are so muddy in. Every single one of us struggles with this at one time or another. God, it's so easy to call ourselves a Christian. Yet in certain places, do not follow you especially when we're frustrated or disappointed or, or there's been a conflict building up. It's so easy to stop following you, Jesus, and just to go back to the old pattern of behavior and speech and reaction. God, help us. Holy Spirit, help us to follow Jesus in all situations, in our language and in our reactions. Help us to be in your kingdom, this new culture, to learn this new language so we can respond as the way your spirit gives us a response. Change us from the inside out. We rely on your grace and your presence to change us, to transform us, and make us like Jesus. For our families, for our neighbors, for our workmates, for each other, this family of God that we call church. In Jesus' name, amen.